a real renaissance man. I mean, yeah. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was a ranger, a Confederate general, governor, and president of Texas A&M University. This week, we look at the amazing life of Lawrence Sullivan, Sul Ross. But first... Who's your favorite G.I. Joe character from Texas? Well, I'm going to say Wild Bill. Uh, His given name, according to his file card, is William S. Hardy. And he was born in Brady, Texas, according to his record. And he was the pilot of the Dragonfly attack helicopter. That was an awesome helicopter. Very cool toy. Well, I'm going to say... And he wore... Oh. He wore a cool cavalry-inspired cowboy hat. That's true. Wild Bill! Wild Bill! I'm, I'm a stereotype! Uh, <laughs> he was. Yeah, he okay. was. Uh, I'm going to say Iceberg, also known as Clifton Nash. And he was from Brownsville, but he hated the heat so much that when he signed up for the Army, he said, send me to Alaska. So for all of you who can't seem to beat the heat down south in Brownsville. This is your guy. Well, uh, I'm going to go with, um, since he's the only one really left that I knew who he was, uh, <laughs> Law of Law and Order. He was an MP named Christopher M. Levine, and he was from Houston, Texas, and his partner was a German shepherd named Order. So Law and Order, uh-huh. And I uh, generally partnered with Chuckles and Fastdraw. Uh, Chuckles was an undercover GI Joe, which that doesn't make a lot of sense. He wore he, Chuckles he wore, wore a Hawaiian shirt. He wore a Hawaiian to blend shirt. In. Yeah, uh, and fast yeah, fast draw had these weird missiles that he fired. Anyway, anyway. I, yeah, I prefer I prefer Junkyard and Mutt. Uh, Junkyard was the dog, and Mutt was the handler. Uh, but they weren't from Texas. So. You know what I had to say oh. to that, Sean? Yo, Joe. Well, whatever. Lawrence Sullivan Ross was born on September 27, 1838, in what was then the Iowa Territory. He was the son of shapely Prince Ross and Catherine Fulkerson, the daughter of a Missouri legislator. Ross had a colorful family, including his namesake great-grandfather, who had been a captive of Native Americans from age 6 to 23. As a child, he was called Little Sull, and later Sull after his father's uncle. Shortly after Ross was born, His parents moved back to Missouri before moving to the New Republic of Texas. They initially settled in the Robertson Colony on the lower Brazos River and later joined seven other families that had settled near present-day Cameron, Texas. In 1845, the Ross family moved to Austin so the children could go to school. Four years later, they relocated again, this time to the planned community of Waco on the Brazos, near where they'd formerly lived. Shapely Ross had acquired a solid reputation as a frontiersman, and to entice him into moving into the area, the family was given four city lots, exclusive rights to operate a ferry across the Brazos River, and the right to buy 80 acres of farmland at $1 an acre. The Ross family built the first house in Waco, a double log cabin on a bluff overlooking the springs. In 1856, Ross enrolled in the preparatory course at Baylor University, which was located at the time in the small town of Independence. 
He completed the two-year study course in one year. After graduation, he attended Wesleyan University in Florence, Alabama. In 1858, Ross returned to Texas to visit his ailing father, who was an agent at the Brazos Indian Reserve. The Army was recruiting Indian scouts from the reserve to help the Wichita expedition search for Buffalo Hump, the famous Comanche chief who was leading deadly raids on Texas settlements. Since Shapely Ross was too ill to go on the expedition, the scouts named Young Soul as the war chief. Ross led 135 warriors alongside the 225 troops under Major Earl Van Dorn and held the courtesy title of captain. The force found Buffalo Hump's band camped outside a Wichita village in Indian Territory. Ross and his men stampeded the Comanche horses before the battle, leaving the warriors at a disadvantage when facing the American cavalry. During the battle, Ross and his three companions seized a captive white child and were confronted by 25 Comanche warriors. Two of the soldiers were killed, and Ross was wounded twice, once by an arrow and once by a bullet. Ross and another soldier managed to fight off their attackers. Van Dorn's forces won the battle, killing over 70 Comanche warriors. Ross's injuries were severe, and his wounds became infected. When he was able to travel, he was first carried on a litter suspended between two mules and then on the shoulders of his men. He recovered quickly, but he experienced some pain for much of the rest of the year. He was highly praised for his actions in the battle by Van Dorn and in the local press. The commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, General Winfield Scott, even offered him a direct commission in the Army. But Ross declined, wanting to go back to school in Alabama. He graduated a year later, and he returned home. His family had been caring for the little girl he rescued in the battle, and finding that no one was able to trace who she was or if she had any other family, he adopted her and he named her Lizzie Ross, after his new fiancée, Lizzie Tinsley. In early 1860, Ross joined the Waco Company of Texas Rangers. Due to his experience in combat, Ross was appointed second lieutenant. Not long afterward, when their captain was transferred away, the other men in the company unanimously voted to make Ross their new captain. He led his company against a Kickapoo tribe, which had murdered two white families, but the Kickapoo sent a prairie fire to escape the rangers. Ross's company was disbanded in early September 1860, but within a week, Governor Sam Houston authorized Ross to raise a new company of 60 rangers to operate out of Fort Belknap near the Brazos Reservation. In late October and November 1860, Comanche under Peta Nakona were conducting numerous raids on the Texas frontier. Governor Houston sent orders to Ross to lead his rangers, as well as a number of other companies, against Nakona. The raiders were tracked to their winter village along the Peace River. On December 11, 1860, Ross led his force of rangers, civilian volunteers, and a company of U.S. cavalry against Nakona's village. During the fighting, Ross personally pursued and killed Nakona as the chief was attempting to flee with his wife and child. It was only after the battle that they realized Nakona's wife had bright blue eyes. She spoke no English and couldn't remember her birth name or very little of her life before joining the Comanche. After some questioning and investigation, it was finally determined that she was Cynthia Ann Parker, who'd been taken from her family at the Fort Parker Massacre 24 years earlier. Her son by Nakona, who was with another warband at the time, was Quana, who would later be the last great chief of the Comanche. Many years later, Quana Parker claimed Nakona wasn't at the battle and actually died three or four years later. And we covered that in a fantastic episode we did about Quana Parker. 
Well, when Ross returned home, Houston asked him to disband the company and form a new Ranger company of 83 men, promising to send written directives soon. While Ross was doing so, Houston appointed Captain William C. Dalrymple as his new aide-de-camp with overall with overall command of the Texas Rangers. Dalrymple was unaware of Houston's verbal orders, and he reprimanded Ross for disbanding his company. Ross completed the reorganization of the company, then returned to Waco and resigned his commission. In his letter of resignation, effective February 1861, Ross informed Houston of his encounter with Dalrymple and noted that he did not believe a ranger company could be effective if the captain did not report solely to the governor. Houston offered to appoint Ross as an aide-de-camp with the rank of colonel, but Ross turned him down. And this wouldn't be the last time that Ross got embroiled in politics. By this time, Texas was itself embroiled in the secession crisis, voting to secede from the United States and join the Confederacy. Ross enlisted his brother... <clears throat> Ross enlisted in his brother Pete's militia company as a private, but new governor Edward Clark requested he go to the Indian Territory, which is called Oklahoma today, to negotiate treaties with the five civilized tribes living in reservations there to keep them from helping the Union Army. Before he left on May 28th, Ross married Lizzie Tinsley. When he arrived in the Indian Territory, he discovered that other Confederate commissioners had already negotiated a treaty with the tribes. In August of 1861, Ross and his company left Texas for Missouri, where they were attached to Stone's regiment, which later became the 6th Texas Cavalry. He left his wife and foster daughter with his in-laws. When they reached Missouri, Ross was elected mayor in command, oh, Ross was elected major in command of the regiment. In Missouri, Ross served under the command of General Ben McCulloch, another former Texas Ranger, and was chosen to lead scouting forces near Springfield, oh, and was chosen to lead scouting forces near Springfield, Missouri, slipping behind enemy lines to gather information. In February 1862, he led 500 troops on an extensive raid 70 miles behind the Union lines. A month later, McCullough's command, including Ross, was assigned to Major General Earl Van Dorn, the Confederate commander in the region. Under Van Dorn's command, the rebels suffered a major defeat at the Battle of Pea Ridge in northwest Arkansas. McCullough was killed in the battle, and Ross blamed the loss on poor leadership of General Van Dorn. In April 1862, due to the scarcity of forage, Ross's troop had to dismount and send their horses back to Texas. The unit, now an infantry unit, was ordered to Memphis, Tennessee, where Confederate forces were reorganizing after their defeat at the Battle of Shiloh. Ross came down with a severe illness that kept him out of action for eight weeks, but he recovered enough to participate in the Battle of Corinth in northern Mississippi in October 1862. It was another defeat for the Confederates, again under Van Dorn, but Ross and his unit distinguished themselves in the action, even saving the retreating rebel army in a valiant rearguard action. A few weeks after the battle, the 6th Cavalry's horses arrived, and the regiment was transferred to the Cavalry Brigade of Colonel William H. Red Jackson. Ross returned to Texas on leave in November 1862, and then returned to action in mid-January of 1863. His troops served extensively throughout Tennessee and Mississippi. Most of 1863, though, was a struggle for Ross. He learned that Lizzie had lost their first child in childbirth, and Ross's own illness, which turned out to be malaria, returned several times from September to March. Despite this hardship, Ross never missed a day of duty and was promoted to Brigadier General in early of 1864. 
all of the men in his unit chose to re-enlist, despite having served out their uh, obligated time. Beginning in May of 1864, the brigade endured 112 consecutive days of combat through 86 different engagements. Though most of the battles were small, the losses were heavy. Ross himself was captured at the Battle of Brown's Mill, but he was quickly rescued by his men. The brigade served under John Bell Hood and participated in the failed Franklin-Nashville campaign of November and December 1864. It was their last major combat operation before they were furloughed home. Ross was in Texas from March to May of 1865 when the Confederate Army disintegrated. He wasn't present with his regiment when it surrendered in Jackson, Mississippi on May 14, 1865. And as such, he didn't receive a parole protecting him from arrest. He also didn't qualify for the amnesty proclamation that applied to anyone below the rank of colonel. So, in order to avoid arrest, on August 4, 1865, he applied for a special pardon from President Andrew Jackson personally. It was approved, but it wasn't applied until July of 1867, so he had a couple of years where he was kind of worried about the situation. When the Civil War ended, Ross was only 28 years old. He'd already been an Indian fighter, a Texas Ranger, and a Confederate general. For the first time, he was able to settle down with his family, setting up a farm just outside of Waco, as well as owning land within town. He and Lizzie expanded their family beyond their foster daughter, having eight children of their own over the next 17 years. Despite being pardoned under Reconstruction, Ross was unable to vote or participate in the political process. However, he prospered during these years. He expanded his acreage, combining farming and ranching, and participated in some of the early cattle drives with his brother Pete. By 1875, Ross owned over 1,000 acres of land and was wealthy enough to build a fine house in Waco and send his children to private school. In 1873, with Reconstruction in Texas nearing its end, Ross was elected sheriff of McLennan County, quote, without campaigning or other solicitation. He named his brother Pete a deputy, and in two years they had arrested over 700 outlaws. He also helped establish the Sheriff's Association of Texas, which organized the sheriffs of 65 Texas counties and met in Corsicana in order to lobby for greater pay and greater power for sheriffs. In 1875, he resigned from his sheriff position to become a delegate to the 1875 Texas Constitutional Convention. He attended 63 of the 68 days of the convention, voted on over 300, very, uh, voted on over 300 times on various measures, and he served on many committees. After the convention concluded, he returned to his farm, and he spent the next four years as a simple private citizen. In 1880, he became an accidental candidate for Texas senator. Now, the story with this is that the nominating convention in his home district was deadlocked between two candidates. As a compromise, one of the delegates suggested that the convention nominate Ross. Though nobody bothered to ask him if he wanted the job, the delegates still elected him. Ross agreed to the nomination to spare the trouble and expense of another convention, and he handily won the election. During his time on the Senate, he served on committees that reflected the wide variety of experience he'd had, including educational affairs, penitentiaries, military affair, stock and stock raising, and agricultural affairs. He also followed his home county, which now included Baylor University, in supporting a measure for statewide prohibition, although he personally opposed it. Finally, he voted to support the building of a new Capitol building when the old one burned down. 
and for it to be financed through the sale of the Panhandle land, which would become the XIT Ranch. When the legislature voted to reduce the terms of its members to two years, Ross declined to run again, and he sought to return home to Waco. In 1884, many of Ross's friends and supporters encouraged him to run for governor. He initially declined, but in 1885, he changed his mind and decided to run for the office in the 18... Nah. But in 1885, he changed his mind and decided to run for the office in the 1886 election. Uh, Texas governors at the time only served two-year terms. He didn't spend any money on his campaign other than traveling expenses, but still easily won the nomination and then the general election. Much of his support came from Confederate veterans. On January 18, 1887, Ross became the 19th governor of the state of Texas. His inauguration ball was held at the newly opened Driscoll Hotel, a tradition that's been followed by every Texas governor since then. During his first term, Ross focused on land use reform, as most of the frontier issues now resulted from disagreements between farmers and ranchers over the use of public land. Ross pushed through legislation that restored the power of the land office commissioner and to provide punishments for illegal use of state lands. Ross also presided over the dedication of the new Texas State Capitol building when construction was complete. In 1888, Ross ran relatively unopposed for a second term. His only opponent that year was a prohibitionist who garnered few votes. During his second term, Ross was forced to intervene in the Jay Bird Woodpecker War in Fort Bend County. It was a deadly feud that had its roots in the racial and political strife that marked Reconstruction in Texas. Ross sent two militia companies, which managed to impose a four-month peace before the tensions got bad again. At this point, Ross sent in the Rangers. The fighting didn't stop, though, and Ross had to intervene personally, sending in even more militia and declaring martial law, also firing all the local officials from both factions, which forced the leaders to compromise and settle their differences. During his time in office, Ross displayed a distinctly progressive and populist bent, which was pretty unusual for the normally very conservative Democratic Party at the time, at least in Texas. He proposed tax reform laws intended to provide for more equitable assessments of property, and to enable the state to exert more control over school funds, as well as to require local taxation to support the public schools. And this is actually a system that still exists today. He also supported antitrust laws, which were passed a full year before the federal government enacted the Sherman Antitrust Act. His reforms were so beneficial to the state that he's the only Texas governor to call a special session of the legislature to deal with a surplus. Wow. Ross also took a strong stance on expanding the state's charitable institutions. By the time he left office, Ross supervised the opening of a state orphan's home, a state institute for deaf, dumb, and blind black children, and a branch asylum for the insane. Ross also felt strongly that the state should adequately care for its veterans. During his first term, the Confederate home in Texas was dedicated in Austin, and within two years, the home was so crowded that it had to move to a larger location. Ross was the first governor to set aside a day for civic improvements, declaring the third Friday in January to be Arbor Day, when schoolchildren should endeavor to plant trees. Despite being both very popular in Texas and with newspapers in the East, Ross decided not to run for a third term, and he left office on January 20th, 1891. However, his days of public service weren't quite over. In the late 1880s, 
quote, poor management, student discontent, professorial dissatisfaction, faculty factionalism, disciplinary problems, and campus scandals were plaguing the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas, or what is now known as Texas A&M University, a state-funded land-grant college in East Texas. The mismanagement of the college had soured the legislature on appropriating money for improvements to the campus, and there was little support for the school and the public. The board of directors decided the school needed to be run by an independent administrative chief rather than the faculty chairman. On July 1, 1890, the board offered the job of president of the school to Governor Ross, asking him to resign his office immediately. Now, Ross agreed to consider the office, but he intended to serve out his elected post. Ross was concerned that since he'd appointed most of the board who chose him, there would be a conflict of interest. However, the press loved the idea when they got wind of it, saying he'd be a perfect fit. The college was founded to teach military and agricultural knowledge. Ross himself had a college education. He had shown excellence in the Army, as well as as a farmer, and he was considered one of the finest administrators ever to sit in the governor's mansion. And furthermore, his honesty at this time was considered above reproach. Ross ended up accepting the position, and when the news spread throughout the state, prospective students flocked to Texas AMC. Many of the men Ross had commanded during the war wanted their sons to study under him, and 500 students attempted to enroll at the beginning of the 1890-1891 school year. This was before he'd even started as president. 316 students were admitted, although the facilities were only designed to accommodate 250. When Ross officially took charge of the school on February 2nd, the campus had no running water, faced a housing shortage, and was taught by disgruntled faculty, and many students were running wild. But he was going to make changes, and he even posted a $20,000 personal bond, quote, for the faithful performance of his duty. In the break between school years, Ross instituted a number of changes, including a new three-story dormitory, later to be named Ross Hall, a new home for the president, and a new building to house the machine and blacksmith shops. Ross began to personally interview all prospective students to determine if they should be admitted and increase the tuition by $10 a session. Tougher educational curriculum was introduced, and Ross also took over appointment of the officers of the Corps of Cadets and cracked down on hazing. The best cadets in the Corps were placed in the Ross Volunteers, which still exist today as the official honor guard of the university. Although Ross said he enjoyed his new position, he wrote to several people that the job, quote, made me turn gray very fast. Enrollment continued to rise and the facilities improved. A mess hall, an infirmary, indoor plumbing, an artesian well for running water, faculty residences, electricity, a gymnasium, an artillery shed, and many other improvements were made. Despite these expenditures, the school treasury often operated as a surplus, during which time Ross would lower the student fees. Ross became a beloved figure on campus, being accessible to the students, intimately involved in their lives, and very active on campus. The military aspect of the college was heavily emphasized, but useless drills and meaningless tasks were eliminated. Ross, the progressive conservative, also was in favor of co-education, and he allowed daughters of professors to attend classes as honorary students. This was a tradition that persisted for a few years into the next century and didn't return until the 1960s. During Ross's seven-year tenure, many of the enduring Texas A&M traditions were formed. In addition to the Ross Volunteers, the Aggie Ring was introduced and the famed Aggie Band was founded. 
His tenure also saw the fight in Texas Aggies play their very first intercollegiate football game against, of course, the University of Texas. In 1893, students began publishing a monthly newspaper, The Battalion, and two years later, they began publishing an annual yearbook then known as the Olio and now called the Aggieland Yearbook. Today, the Bat is a daily newspaper, and for many years, its masthead said, Lawrence Sullivan Ross, soldier, statesman, knightly gentleman. During his term as president of Texas AMC, Ross continued to be active in Freemasonry as well as with veterans organizations, including the United Confederate Veterans and the Daughters of the Confederacy. He was also appointed to a seat in the Railroad Commission in 1894. He chose not to accept it when hundreds of letters and petitions came in begging him to stay on at AMC. In 1897, while hunting with his son Neville over Christmas break, he came down with acute indigestion and a bad chill and decided to go home early. He went back to College Station on December 30th and met with a doctor. Three days later he was dead, either from a heart attack or congestive heart failure. He was only 59 years old. The entire student body escorted Ross back to Waco, with Confederate veterans in gray uniforms lining the roads to his home. Several thousand people attended his funeral at Oakwood Cemetery in Waco. To further honor his memory, students at Texas AMC held the first Silver Tap Ceremony, now held each year to remember those current students at Texas A&M who have died that year. It is the last and most honored tradition to come from Sol Ross's presidency. Uh, the morning after Ross's death, the Dallas Morning News published an editorial saying, quote, It has been the lot of few men to be of such great service to Texas as Sol Ross. Throughout his life, he has been closely connected with the public welfare and discharged every duty imposed upon him with diligence, ability, honesty, and patriotism. He was not a brilliant chieftain in the field, nor was he masterful in the art of politics, but better than either, he was a well-balanced, well-rounded man from whatever standpoint one might estimate of him. The editorial also said, quote, He leaves a name that will be honored as long as chivalry, devotion to duty, and spotless integrity are standards of our civilization, and an example which ought to be an inspiration to all young men of Texas who aspire to careers of public usefulness and honorable renown. In 1917, the Texas legislature established the Sol Ross Normal College, which is now called Sol Ross State University, in the far west Texas town of Alpine, which was an area that at this time was sorely lacking in higher education. The same year, a 10-foot bronze statue of Ross was placed at the center of the Texas A&M campus. Over time, students began the tradition of placing pennies at the feet of the statue before their exams for good luck. School legend states that Ross would often tutor students, and his payment would accept only a penny for their thoughts. At exam time, his statue, located in Academic Plaza, is often showered, completely covered in pennies. It sounds like the kind of legacy that he would have wanted. Yeah, good old Sol Ross. Yeah, we uh, yeah, we talked quite a yeah, we talked quite a bit about him uh, when we were talking about the Texas Rangers and how remarkable um, a life he had before he even went on to, to go to uh, be the president at uh, Texas AMC. Um, I mean, how many people, I mean, yeah, it was the Confederacy, but how many people achieved the rank of general when they're, they're basically kids? 25 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing. He, 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 this is the kind of person, like, we talk about second acts in Texas, and this is a guy that had 
five acts, four acts at least. <laughs> you know, he he was at, and he was a success at everything he did. He didn't fail at anything. That's what's remarkable about him, I think. I mean, yeah, like the guy's, you know, he's an icon and he's incredible. So, I mean, anybody who's an Aggie, you know, like is already like halfway ahead of us in this story. <laughs> That's true. I, I just didn't realize so many of the traditions literally sprang from like from his administration, his from him, like even yeah. even in death. You know, the, the the most honored, the most honored thing that anyone in A and M does is is silver taps. I mean, that I I got, I didn't go to A and M. I grew up near there. I, I got chills and like choked up just reading about silver taps. So, you know, yeah. for those who have been to it, like Scott, and you, I know you have, and obviously, uh, I your have, family has. Yeah, I, I've never, um, I've never attended silver taps. Uh, most of the traditions I I, I know of secondhand. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, just it, it is remarkable how many of those enduring traditions that you um, we think about when we think about Texas A&M originated back in uh, his day. Yeah. Well, as as we've said before on a couple of other episodes, nobody on this show is really neither a University of Texas person nor an Aggie. So we're we're at, uh, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. How about this? Yeah, but <clears throat> some of how about us this? married into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna say, how about this? Uh, you know, gosh, just just to be a Texas Ranger and have that as your career and your legacy would be enough for any man, or to be known as uh, a smart, loyal governor with uh, wonderful integrity. That's pretty good legacy. Or to be a wonderful university president that has all these traditions that uh, have spawned for me. But uh, a real renaissance man. I mean. Yeah. And, and he participated in some of the early cattle drives. Like, you know, he he did it all. He, he, he Yeah. He had, he had interaction with Sam Houston where he like, hey, here's how you should do your job, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty pretty great guy. And you know, I, w- one thing I love is the idea that you know one of the traditions sprang from him. You know, fifty you know, or not thirty years after his death of the pennies on the on the statue. Like that's another tradition that's directly related to to Sol Ross. Now, and you know, the thing is, uh, the thing about Sol Ross University, State University, is um, mm. you know, normal college that was. That was a, a term at the time for basically an education school. They, they created teachers. That was the the original purpose of the normal college was to was to make teachers, for these little towns out in West Texas. And and uh, for many years, Sol Ross State University was where a lot of uh, administrators, school administrators, got their master's degree and their their PhD in administration and their certifications. So like my dad got his uh, principals and his master's degree from Sol Ross, and he got his principal certification and his his. Uh, uh, superintendent certification from Sol Ross State University. So the idea that, that he's associated with, with so much in education in this state is is fitting for him. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting how um, progressive he was, you know, relative to his peers. Um, things like the, uh, you know, taking care of veterans. That was a relatively new concept for a lot of people. And um, the the stuff with the 
land management by the state, you know, trying to reconcile all those differences between all the farmers that were used to just going out there and taking the land and using it for their own purposes. Still controversial to this day. Um, but then also having um, the tradition of allowing uh, professors' daughters to attend classes and uh, get an education that way. Not quite the same thing as uh, full co-education, but um, definitely for its day, that was a very progressive mm-hmm. policy for him to follow. So there was there was an attempt at one point to remove his statue because of uh, there was a belief or a thought that he was associated with the Ku Klux Klan or with the Knights of the Golden Circle, which were uh, which was a Klan like group in Texas. But uh, it, it turns out that there was no direct evidence that he was in any way affiliated with either of those organizations. There was some spurious. Um, uh, slander about him in some of the, the the papers, the Republican papers during the during the first election, but that he was also accused of being being a Republican and of being a, a supporter of the Grange and of two of the of the farmers. So um, no one has been able to prove anything, and 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 then, and then some other situations at, a, at Texas A and M with the, the the collapse of the bonfire kind of obscured that. That effort, but you know, the, the thing is, is that his integrity and his honesty and his fairness really does stand through the test of time in a lot of ways. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I am Scotticus. We know you love this show. So tell your friends, especially if they're Aggies this week, and get out there and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash Texas podcast, where you too can become a come and take a Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.